Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippi and welcome back to That Trippi Show. This week we have a special guest who as soon as the Afghanistan crisis worsened, I knew I had to hear his perspective or that you did. And he's a Marine who served four tours in Iraq, now serves on the House Armed Forces Committee. My friend, Congressman Seth Moulton. Seth, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. It's great to be here, Joe. And uh, I wouldn't be here without you in that first campaign. So thank you. Thank you again. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a, a, a really hard fought and, and a good one and uh, a, a great win. And I'm really glad you're there. In fact, the, the, this is one of those moments where I'm really uh, proud to have worked with you and, and to, to that you're representing uh, 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 your district in, in, in the House. I the thing that happened was, I, you know, I read your statement and I just want to read this, the first part of it to the audience, get a sort of set the show and what I want to talk about to say that. And this was four or five days ago uh, th that Seth put this out to say that today is anything short of a disaster would be dishonest. Worse, it was avoidable. The time to debate whether we stay in Afghanistan has passed. But there is still time to debate how we manage our retreat. For months, I've been calling on the administration to evacuate our allies immediately, not to wait for paperwork, for shaky agreements with third countries, or for time to make it look more orderly. And, um, you know, Seth, now that four or five days have passed, uh, I just wanted to get your perspective on, on is there still time? Is there a way to, to evacuate the folks that we need to evacuate? Absolutely. It is absolutely within the power of the United States of America to get people out of Afghanistan safely, to save more innocent lives. I mean, Joe, if we can put a man on the moon, we can get people out of Afghanistan. Well, did you see the um, today, I think it was that the administration... Uh, or I think it was the embassy said that they couldn't even uh, sort of protect or guarantee that pe uh, that embassy people, the Americans in the country, would be safe getting to the airport. That they they couldn't uh, guarantee that. I mean, it, did you see that? And and what what did you think when you saw it? I was ashamed. I mean the the fact that we are putting the safety and livelihood of American citizens in the hands of the Taliban, a terrorist organization that hosted the 9-11 attackers. I mean, talk about a disaster, but that's where we are. And so what I'm doing right now is focusing on how we go forward, on what we can do to get people not just to the airport, but through the gates. Right now, there's just a crush of people outside the gates, and it's a carefully chosen word because people are literally getting crushed to death. I've been pleading with everyone I know on the ground in Kabul to just let more people in. And from everything I can tell, it's the State Department that's holding things up. And what's that? I mean, why? I, mean, I don't. <laughs> because they're trying to get the paperwork right, Joe, because they seem more concerned about their bureaucracy than people's lives. I mean, we're going to look back on this and see people who we literally condemned to death because of typos in their passports or their immigration forms. 
we got to sort that out later. Right. I was just talking to Richard Armitage. Actually, I've been talking to him throughout this crisis for advice because he heroically managed the evacuation of refugees from South Vietnam in 1975. And look, he wasn't processing paperwork on the ground in South Vietnam. He was getting people on boats, on airplanes, on whatever he could and getting them out. And then we sorted out in Guam. This is exactly the plan that I laid out for the administration several months ago. In fact, when they wouldn't respond to me, I put it on a website so everybody could see this is what we need to do. It's not complicated. We've done it before. Well, Seth, it, it was interesting you bring up Richard Armitage. I know you were you were on with him earlier. We were listening to that a little bit, and you guys really have couldn't couldn't you know in a lot of ways be farther apart on on a lot of political things. But on this thing, where he obviously has deep experience, you guys were very much on the same page. Throw, get just get people to safely and and process them later. Well, I've been listening to some of the work you uh, guys have been doing, and, and I think that just to critique your point a little bit, uh, Richard and I couldn't have been farther apart politically 10 years ago. I think we're remarkably aligned in the incredibly polarized political world in which we uh, live today. He may be a Republican, but he's sure as hell no Trump Republican. Sure. Right. He's, he understands the authoritarian movement moment that's going on right now. Yes. We all have to be a pro-democracy coalition. But to your point, Alex, look, we are, we're completely aligned here. And it's because it's just the right thing to do. We both know what it means to stand up for American values. We both know what it means to fight on the ground, to be in combat, and to have to ask people to put their trust in us, to literally trust us with their lives. I don't think many people in the administration seem to understand that. Well, the, the other thing, though, that, that just strikes me is that we tend to ha- I, we didn't handle we handled it a hell of a lot better in Iraq. But there was still a lot of the same thing where, you know, uh, families uh, were, you know, had to, you know, couldn't get in to, to the U.S. Uh, ha- having helped us there. Um, and it, and is that the same? Is that, that's what I'm saying. Is this the same sort of form filling out? check the box thing that, that just keeps coming. I mean, did we not learn from any of that or? I mean, and that's another way to put it, Joe, is it's just extraordinary that we haven't learned these lessons, especially when so many people in this administration were in the Obama administration when they mismanaged the withdrawal from Iraq. They mismanaged it so badly that we had to turn around and send a whole bunch of troops back in just a year or two later. And I said from the very beginning that that would be the ultimate tragedy of our withdrawal from Afghanistan if we have to turn around and send more troops back in. Well, we've already done that. There are more troops on the ground right now at Kabul International Airport than there were in the entire country just a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, they're at much greater risk. And are you finding any allies in con- – I mean, one of the things that strikes me, I think, is – and one of the reasons when – we talked the first time about you you running was how you know the the we had sort of gone through the the phase of where a lot of veterans from World War II and other wars uh, uh, had you know had, people who'd served were actually you know serving in Congress. I mean, are there any any other like are there any Republicans? Um, who are working with you to try to get the administration to think 
through how to do this better? Or did the administration even talk to you about this? I've been talking uh, with several Republicans. Um, had a long conversation this morning with Adam Kinzinger, who's been a big advocate. I had a long conversation last night with Peter Meyer, who's been a big advocate, uh, uh, critical to our to our coalition. Um, I got a text yesterday from Steve Russell, who's a very conservative Republican from Oklahoma that I served with before he was defeated a couple years ago. He reached out to me out of the blue, just asking, how do we host Afghan refugees here in Oklahoma? I want to convince the governor it's the right thing to do. Give me some advice. So I've heard from a lot of Republicans. I've not heard much of anything from the administration. And then there, you do have the, the, the sort of uh, echo chamber on the right, though, pushing against uh, immigrant, you know, can't bring them in. Oh, of course. Just- I mean, there are some terrible things that, that uh, some Republicans uh, on the Hill and off the Hill have said. Uh, but look, I mean, this is to right. be expected. I mean, this is, as you've said before, barely even a party anymore, uh, uh, some of these fascists. And they're against immigration in every form. And by the way, they're not veterans. They don't get this. They don't understand what it means to put your life on the line for the country or to ask a friend, an ally to do the same. And I think, Seth, that brings up one of the points that we heard you and and Richard talking about earlier, too. There's there's a a heart decision here and a head decision here about some of the the implications that, I mean, you saw in Iraq. But, you know, we're probably going to have to count on local support again in the future. And, and what we're doing right now is is uh, really, I think, if you're trying to help an American down the future, wherever you are, you have to look at this and say, look at what they're doing to the people that helped. Absolutely. This has major implications for our national security for decades to come. Because people are watching this all over the world. America's credibility is on the line. And it's not just our credibility as the United States of America writ large our national credibility. It's the credibility of young men and women, young Americans like myself. When I was a Marine Lieutenant, my early twenties, just trying to convince my translator to keep working for us. I'll never forget the morning Muhammad came into work as he did every day. We met at our gate to the gate to our small base. But that morning he said, Seth, I can't work for you anymore. They came to my house last night. They threatened to kill me and my entire family if I kept helping the Americans. And over the course of the next several hours, knowing how important the work we were doing together was, I convinced Muhammad to stay on. I convinced him to summon an enormous amount of personal courage to keep working with us, to keep doing the work we were doing for America and for Iraq, to fundamentally put his trust, not just in America, but in me. Because I said, I've got your back. We'll protect your family if that's what it takes. And we will not leave you behind. The reason why I'm getting texts and emails and phone calls from veterans all across America at all hours of the day and night this week 
it's because so many other Americans have made that promise too. Marines, soldiers, diplomats, intelligent officers, even just development officials and yeah. aid workers and, yeah. and reporters, yeah, journalists. I made that promise in, in Iraq when I was there uh, working to, to sort of teach how to create democracy in, you know, in a party. Uh, there, I mean, one of the things that we're, this might seem like a little bit of a non sequitur, but one of the things where nobody's talking about right now is what the effect will be on all the veterans who are going to see our country break that promise, let us down. I wouldn't be surprised if we have far more casualties due to death by suicide over the next two years than we've had over the last two years in Afghanistan itself. Yeah, the, the, the most haunting thing, uh, your statement uh, really rang, you know, uh, really rang true to me, but one of the most haunting pieces of it was when you, at the end of that statement, where you, you said others will forever ask that haunting question. I heard too often from my own Marines in Iraq, why are we here? The best answer I could ever come up with was simply, so no one has to be, be here in our place. Um, and that, that that was never adequate. And you put on top of that then, that you know these promises uh, and assurances, and now uh, people who who risked everything uh, for the America, for you, for others who served, that that we're not doing everything we can to keep that promise. On top of the whole other questions that that a lot a lot of people who've served, a lot of veterans are struggling with, is just incredible. I feel so powerless sitting here just essentially forwarding a text from a veteran in touch via WhatsApp with his interpreter and his family and some Marine that I just happen to know on the ground in Kabul right now. And yet I'm at least in a position to do something as a member of Congress. It's not nearly enough. But I'm at least in a position to do something. So many people right now, not just Afghans, but American veterans trying to help our Afghan friends feel incredibly helpless at this moment. Is there anything Congress can do? I mean, is there any anything to sort of just break down the process to 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 sort of get to where your plan is just to get everybody else, be everybody out, whether it's Guam, wherever, and then sort it out afterwards? Or is it is it just the bureaucracy is just too too cemented in place? I mean, this is such an obvious solution. It's not going to solve the entire right. problem because there are still people who can't get to the airport. But the idea that we would let people die in front of us, yards in front of American lines, in front of our eyes, because we don't let them in the gate, is just absurd. And look, Joe, in the absence of getting a call from high-level officials in the administration to plead my case to them, I have to plead it through platforms like this. I'm not here on your podcast to get to know people. I'm here because America needs to unite behind this mission. 
and we need the pressure of the administration to do the right thing. And so what could, uh, what could listeners do? Uh, One thing you can do is you can go to your elected representatives, the people like myself, but people who may not have my particular background as a veteran or someone with connections to a place like Afghanistan and make the case that this is critical. Make the case to them to do everything in their power as I am to pushing the administration to do the right thing, pushing them positively, showing unity between Democrats and Republicans and reminding Americans that we are a country that should welcome refugees, that no one in the administration or elsewhere in Congress, no one should fear bringing Afghan refugees to America because of the crooked politics of Donald Trump. This is a time for America to rise up and do the right thing as we did after Vietnam. Think about the amazing things that Vietnamese Americans have done for our communities all across the country. Those are a few things that people can do right now. I know that that doesn't feel like much, but no, it's something. It's, it's if everybody does it, if we can get people to get the message out, to talk to your friends, your your neighbors, and your your coworkers uh, and family, and get them to do the same uh, to keep the pressure on and. Uh, to, to make the case that uh, this is, that we've got to do everything we can. There are some aid organizations uh, that are helping as well. And you can find uh, some of those uh, links online. But the biggest thing we've got to do is just focus on getting people out. I know I'm going to be working for the next year to welcome Afghan refugees into my community, into communities across the country, do what I can to support them once they arrive. But our focus right now must be on simply getting them here. And is that going to require even more troops than than are you know, than have already been? You know, more mobilize, you know, mobilization to to, to clear. It very well might. It very well might. Six thousand troops at one airport sounds like a lot especially compared to the number of troops that we had all over Afghanistan just a few weeks ago. But the Marines on the ground tell me that they are stretched thin. So this administration needs to do what it takes to complete this mission. It's something I've been asking the president for a commitment on for months now, but especially over the last few days. Don't make the mistake of yet again setting a withdrawal timeline based on a date. Commit to completing this mission. Commit to saving every life that we can. Right. And then we'll go home with honor rather than with shame. And continue the American presence past the 31st if that's that's what it takes. Absolutely. I mean, look, it wouldn't have taken that if they had followed my advice and started this evacuation months ago. What, what do you mean by that, Seth? It might not even take that if today they would just let people in through the damn gate without trying to get their paperwork straightened out first. But at the pace things are going right now, it's definitely going to take longer than yeah, August 31st. Absolutely. Seth, for people that might not know, and I know a lot of our listeners are, are, are kind of 
gobbling up as much of the news as they can. You have been talking to the State Department about how it's actually going and how people are getting into the airport. For I don't think a lot of people realize how how slow that process is and how kind of just totally bogged down it is. Can you can you walk people through what that actually means? I was on the phone a few nights ago uh, with an amazing Afghan American. Served his country, served our country. American hero, Afghan hero. His wife was huddling in a basement in our home outside of Kabul. The first decision that she had to make and that he was trying to advise her on was when to try to make the run for Kabul, to go through whatever Taliban checkpoints might be between her and the capital just to get to the city. Once she found a friend's house to stay in in Kabul, she then had to make the decision of when to try to go to the airport. With the chaos of the past few days, some people have been saying to wait. But I worry that the longer you wait, the worse it could get with the Taliban and you might not even make it to outside the gates. Once she gets to the airport, it will be a scene of utter chaos. The Taliban soldiers literally going around with chains, whipping people, trying to scare them away. People crushed against the razor wire, separating the Marines from them, pleading their cases to get through. Many will stay there for hours, for days in the beating sun with no food or water just trying to get across that line. And if somehow they find themselves in the right place at the right time with the right American on the other side who has the right list, because I happen as a member of Congress to have put her name on a list that I pray has gotten through the State Department bureaucracy to that gate at the airport, then maybe, just maybe, she can get through. And that's somebody, though, who has access to you. I mean, there's there's so many people just like her who don't who may not be on that list. Uh, yeah, who may not be on that list, who don't have a right. congressman that can contact a friend who happens to work for the State Department, who happens to know a Marine on the ground. I mean, this is so tenuous. It's unbelievable that we are talking about this in these terms as the world's greatest superpower. Yeah, both of you have actually pretty personal, oh, this is very personal, I know, to you, Seth, but also Joe, having been in Iraq and having dealt with getting people out. And, and Seth, I, I, maybe people who didn't follow your first campaign might not know the story of Muhammad and, and what, what, what you did, not just when you were there, but, but after to get him out, if you want to get into that. Muhammad came in lived with my family in Massachusetts for a year while I was ironically deployed back to Iraq for my fourth tour. So he moved into my brother's bedroom at my parents' house. He wanted to work, but wasn't allowed to by our immigration laws because he was waiting for his work permit to be approved. We 
found a lawyer who was willing to take on his case pro bono because that's what it took a top lawyer at a top Boston law firm to simply help him get the paperwork done. And when he was finally able to go to work after months of just living off the goodwill of my parents and our hometown community, he got a job as the first Arabic teacher, at least in modern history, at Phillips Academy Andover, one of the best high schools in the entire world. He immediately started contributing enormously to our country, to educating our youth. And he's only done more than that since. He's become an extraordinary American citizen. But the only reason why he's even alive is because he got himself to America on a Fulbright scholarship. And my family and I, with tremendous help from our friends, were able to get him the paperwork to stay. And that should have been automatic. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean it should have been so yeah. much easier. No, no, it's, I mean, it's just. I mean, and this is a myth. Like, look, I understand, by the way, I've fought overseas against terrorists. Okay. I understand the threat of terrorism. I don't want to bring any terrorists to the United States. So, for our own national security, we do have to vet these refugees, we have to do security checks. But in the case of someone like Mohammed, I mean, this is a young man who risked his life repeatedly, day after day, for our country. I mean, most Americans have never done that. So the fact that he barely got here is just, it, it speaks to how broken this system truly is. Yeah, I, I know, again, firsthand, not uh, uh, in the same vein at all, because uh, I was volunteering to, on, on sort of pro-democracy stuff um, in Iraq. But um, uh, but there was there's a family now still. Uh, they 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 saved me a couple times. I when I, when I you know, my own naivete got me in trouble. And uh, it's hard to imagine you getting yourself in trouble in a place yeah. like Iraq. Jeff. No, but uh, but they did. <laughs> and they were there. They were a Christian family. Uh, it, it just struck me like in their house, um, everything they had, you know, uh, American flags. Uh, uh, I mean, just, they just loved America. They came to my aid several times. And to this day, I don't even want to mention what town city they're town they're in because they're still, you know, as you know, uh, uh, for Christians in the, in, in the area, uh, could be a, can be a problem. But I yeah. couldn't get them any help at all, uh, and it was you know it, it, they they should have been, and and it it's it's it, it just connects me enough to this in in a way to because I th just the, the tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan um, who 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 were made promises and and went well beyond what the family I'm talking about uh, about did and and still are just sort of being, you know, left um, to, I mean, we can't, eat, we're, we're not even guaranteeing Americans can get to the airport from, I mean, it's just. No, there's 10 to 15,000 American citizens, the last estimate I heard, who are still 
in Kabul and outside of Kabul and can't get through the gates of the airport. 10 to 15,000 Americans, even before we start uh, yeah. counting our Afghan friends and allies. And, and one more thing, Joe, you know, you're very modest, but don't take anything away from the work that you were doing on the ground in Iraq. I mean, you were not trained to go to war. You weren't carrying a gun to protect yourself. You just volunteered to show up and do the hard work of democracy. You risked your life for our values too. And there are a lot of people in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places around the world beyond our troops who are doing the same thing today. Yeah. Those intelligence officers, the diplomats, the aid workers, the democracy volunteers, the women's rights volunteers, activists, journalists, people who are fighting for democratic values and human rights all over the world at risk to themselves and at risk to the people who they work with. So don't think that this won't happen again. This will happen again and people will look to Afghanistan and to whether we upheld our promises in Afghanistan when they decide whether to trust America in the future. So Seth definitely wanted your take on this. And one of the things online that's been circulating is really unfortunate, especially kind of on right wing, right wing Twitter has essentially been this notion that, you know, why don't the Afghan security forces, you know, stand up and fight? Why aren't they fighting? And it wanted your take on, I know you've worked with a lot of people like this in Iraq, but what do you say to that? Americans taught the Afghans to fight as we do with partners, with support, side by side, with aircraft overhead, with helicopters to evacuate them if they get wounded, with drones to attack their enemies, with great intelligence, eyes in the sky and in space, who could tell them exactly where their enemies are. Well, in the space of a few weeks, we took all of that away and said, Despite the way we've been fighting for the last 20 years, despite the way that we have trained you to fight, now you just got to go it alone. And if you get hurt, no one's going to come to help you. We can't tell you where the enemy is. We're not even going to help you repair your own Air Force when they run out of parts. Afghan soldiers fought and died alongside us for 20 years. And in every single one of those 20 years, more Afghan security forces died than in all 20 years combined for us Americans. So do not tell me that Afghans are not willing to fight and die for their country. There's just one other point that I can summarize in basically a sentence that I think might be important sure. to make, which is that, and something I've said for a while, which is that I think we've known for a while now that we're not going to win the war in Afghanistan. But there are still devastating ways we can lose. And that's what we're seeing play out right now on the ground. Thanks, Seth. And, and thanks, Joe. I think that's just about all the time we've got today. Oh, man. And we didn't get to the David Rohde piece that uh, uh, I think is really important. Uh, 
on a, a family he's trying been trying to get out of Afghanistan and his experience uh, there. We'll put that in the uh, in the show notes along with uh, Seth's uh, full statement. So uh, thanks all for being with us and thanks for listening to that trippy show. You can follow Seth at Seth Moulton on Twitter. We'll be back next Friday at the usual time and check back soon for more special guest episodes. As always, please subscribe, leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. Um, and if there was ever a show um, that I hoped you would send on to others to listen to um, and to deliver a message uh, that they too should call the administration of their elected official to, to raise their voice about this, it's this one. I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll join us next Friday. Thank you. See you next time. Estás atrapado en el tráfico, pero luego hay una recompensa para ti. Una modelo, la marca de los luchadores. Mantienes la calma a pesar de las bocinas, las largas filas y los gritos. ¡Muévete! Así que al llegar a casa, sírvete esta dorada y refrescante lager. Porque tú sabes que tu paciencia vale oro. Tú eres un luchador y esta es tu recompensa. Modelo, la marca de los luchadores. Todo con medida importada por Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois.